Revelation 21. We did about two-thirds of it last week. We'll finish up tonight. Let me just read the last three verses that we didn't get to. Verses 6, 7, and 8. And he said to me, it is done, it is finished, similar to what Jesus said on the cross, not the same word. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, repeated things from chapter 1, almost you could think to some degree those are bookends for the entire book. Chapter 1, verse 8 has very similar things, first and the last, those are all interchangeable terms ultimately. He says, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Just want to give you a framework to how to view some of the things in this text that we're looking at, that we've looked at partly. We'll finish it tonight. And and truthfully, throughout these last two chapters, the whole book, if you really want to say so, but more particularly in these last two chapters, that there are a lot of major contrasts that I want to point out to you. And I want to give you, um, I think, about six of them. And so we're not going to be able to spend a lot of time on either any of them. And I'll just talk about a few of them. Um, the first one, if you want to write down verses 1, 21, 1, says, I saw a new heaven and new earth, and it's contrasted with the first. That's the word protos, the first meaning the first heaven and new earth. So we've been talking about what's new with you. That's been our series, and this is our last one. And what's new ultimately is not just with you, but with the universe, is that there is going to be a radical change. A radical change from the old earth to the new earth. And we said last time that there is some things that are, con- are continual or continuity with it and discontinuity. So there's things that will be similar and the same and there are things that will be different. And that's going to be true with us. Um, God's going to remake and reform our bodies. So there will be recognizable things about us, but there'll be things that will be new altogether. And so there'll be things like Jesus, you know, when they, he wasn't purposely, um, you know, hiding himself and his identity from them, they could recognize who he was, but he no longer needed to knock at doors. He would appear and disappear. Um, he wouldn't have done that in his earthly body, but he could in his new one. Um, although for him, he chose to, at least while he was 40 days afterwards on earth, he was able to have the scars in his hands and on his feet because that's how Thomas recognized him. So he was able to have those things in his glorified body in that sense, unless you think his final glorification of that was actually after the 40 days. But however you look at that, there is a definite reversal and radical transformation on a universal scale. Then you go to the next contrast. You have New Jerusalem, Old Jerusalem. And I want to give you a little tip on how to read the book of Revelation, one of numerous ones, actually. Um, you could say that the book of Revelation is a tale of two cities, to borrow Charles Dickens' title, um, between two cities, Babylon 
the great harlot, the harlot city, and then you have the New Jerusalem, the holy city. They are in complete contrast. And throughout the book, um, Babylon, the harlot city, who is full of evil, is in control, and they, they rule everything, and it looks like there'll be triumph, but in the end, um, Jesus destroys that whole city, that whole empire and economic system, and the holy city is that was introduced early to the seven churches is now brought into full revelation, and you see all of it in its glory, and that city triumphs. Um, you could see a little bit of that contrast in Galatians 4, 26-29, when Paul alludes to the, uh, the old city and the new city and who represents what in that little passage there. But there's going to be a new city, and that's going to take place in, when the new Jerusalem comes because the old city, Jerusalem, will no longer be there, and the Babylon harlot city will have been destroyed. So another contrast. The next one I want to take a little bit more time with, and that is the one in verse number 7. Actually, let me go back verse 6 and then verse 7. He says, to the thirsty. And in our text, in the last few verses, there are a couple references to being thirsty. If you'll read chapter 22 and verse 17, it says, The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. And the one who is thirsty, come. Let him, the one who desires, take the water of life without price. Jesus in John's gospel, who wrote this book of Revelation, talks about being thirsty. And, and I want to present a... Pre- I tried to stump Pastor Dave a little bit on this one to see what he could think. Um, Jesus says, if you... To the woman at the well, he says, if you drink this water, meaning from the well itself, you'll be thirsty again. But the very next verse, he says, but if you drink the water that I give to you, you will never thirst again. He repeats that exact phrase in John 6.35. He says, the one who comes to me, I will give him living water and he will never thirst again. Repeated. But when you get to Revelation, it seems like he says, but the ones who are thirsty, and they're the ones that are in the new Jerusalem. So the question is, if they know Jesus, and he said, if you drink my water, You'll never be thirsty. Why are they pictured here as being thirsty? In fact, it's not just being thirsty as something they do. It is nominative in the sense that it describes their identity. They are literally the thirsty ones. Why is it that Jesus said you'll never thirst, but when they actually get to the New Jerusalem, it says they're thirsty and he's going to give them something to drink? What would be the answer? I think the answer is, and I'll tell you my theory, if you read Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about salvation in this way. He says, salvation is not going from slavery to no slavery. He says, it's not going from slavery to sin to not being a slave at all. You're going from slavery to sin to being the slave of God, the slave of righteousness. So it's not going from that to a new freedom that has no one over you. And I think what he's trying to say is the same thing, that when you get saved... You're not going from thirst to no thirst. You're going from thirst that cannot satisfy to a thirst that will always satisfy. So we'll be thirsty, but obviously not a physical thirst. But this is a thirst 
that Jesus says, if you drink the water I get, you will never thirst again. And I think he means by that, you'll never be thirsty in such a way that it will be unsatisfied, unquenched. And that's why in the text he says, and I will keep giving them the water of life. And the analogy is that you will never be disappointed. You'll always have your thirst satisfied. And all, none of the things that you have here that disappointed you will be the same in the new heavens and the new earth. So I think that, by the way, I want to make an application for this, that one of the marks of being a true Christian is that you have a spiritual thirst and appetite for God. You will, if you come to Jesus and he quenches your soul's thirst, that is not just an event that happens when you get saved. According to the Bible, it is something that will be going on forever, that you'll always be thirsty and you'll always be finding that satisfaction and all that God is for you in Jesus. Because that's what marks Christians. Let me show you how it connects in this passage. Verse 6, to the thirsty, I will keep giving from the spring of the water of life, and here's without payment. So it's not a satisfaction that you have to earn, merit, work for. It's referring to a salvation that is free, without cost. Draw a line or make in your Bible a notation and put down Isaiah 55 and verse 1 and following. The prophet Isaiah says, yo, he says, Come to those who are thirsty, come. Come and drink water. Come and drink water without money and without cost. It is an identical uh, representation of that passage, meaning that God's thirst-quenching water is absolutely free, and you will always find. Now, what happens to us here, though? Even those of us who've had their soul thirst quenched in Jesus you could look at it this way. One way of describing sin is no longer drinking from Jesus to find your satisfaction. And for all of us every day in a practical application, it is continually, we need to seek to continually thirst and be satisfied in Jesus and all that he is for us. And, and there's a lot of things about that. You know, you can find your thirst quenched through all kinds of things, relationships, money, people, drugs, alcohol, extreme sins, and all kinds of things. And they don't have to be bad things. They can be, but they can be inherently good things. Things that should be inferior become superior in our lives above God. And we think that they will quench our soul's thirst, but they don't. And we have to find out the hard way by not being thirsty for God and being thirsty for other things to do that. Let me show you how stronger it is even than that. The Bible says in verse 6, to the ones who were thirsty, a parallel statement beginning in verse 7 follows. The one who conquers will have this heritage. It's not out of line to see the one who is thirsty to be synonymous with the one who conquers. The ability to be able to conquer in times of persecution and suffering as these people are going through is the one who has the ability to find their satisfaction in God so when they lose everything, that it doesn't compromise their faith or lose their faith in that sense. So I would tell you the one who conquers is the one who remains thirsty for God no matter what circumstance or what situation they may find themselves in. That's why 
it says that the one who conquers, I think, will have this heritage. The word conquer outside of the chapters 2 and 3 of the seven churches, it only used once other than this passage. It means the same where we get Nike shoes from. Nike means victory. But it's not just victory over sin in the context. It's someone who conquers in the face of very, very difficult and distraught circumstances, persecutions like they were going to, even facing the possibility of martyrdom. And that through all of that, no matter what would come their way, no matter how hard things would get, they stay the course. They don't compromise their face. They have conquered it, if you might say. In, in contrast to that, I would tell you that that is verse 8. There are two, and if you look at it, it doesn't seem like it, but there are two kinds of water sources. One of them is the water from the springs of life. The contrast is there's another water that isn't really water. What a great analogy this is. This is a water made of fire because it's a lake of fire. One of them leads to life. The other one leads to what? The second death, another contrast. So here's what happens. I know it's probably true. Obviously, people in the lake of fire will be everyone who's been lost. If you read Matthew 25, 41, and 46, you'll find that they will be given eternal punishment that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Originally, hell in the lake of fire was for Satan and those who followed him. But it eventually became for human beings that rebelled and all that went with it. And so everyone who's ever uh, rejected Christ will be there. Read chapter 20 and the last four verses, and you'll find that the second death phrase is repeated when they stand before the white throne. But here's the, here's the thing. Let me show you. The traits of the people that are in the lake of fire sound, at least some of them, like people who were so-called Christians but they didn't hold on to their faith and conquer when they faced pressure. That's why, and you might have think this list was always kind of odd. It says in verse 8, but for the cowardly. So is it, wow, if I'm afraid, Pastor Walker, and I can't control my fear, does that mean I might end up in the lake of fire? Well, I think it's the point is this is what marks people in this context who were facing all kinds of pressures for being a Christian. In fact, Hebrews was written, written to Jew, Jewish people who were constantly being tempted to go back to Judaism because the pressure of being Christian was too great. And a whole book of the Bible was written for that. But people who are cowards, meaning what? Fearful. They let circumstances that made them afraid, afraid to stand up for Jesus, afraid to say what they needed to say, afraid to stick to what is true. And, and you can see it in the seven churches. They start believing false doctrine, and false doctrine is always accompanied by some sort of immorality. And it always has to do with some form of idolatry. So you get the idea, but the cowardly, the unbelieving or faithless, they don't keep their faith, they don't have strong faith, they jettison their faith. The detestable, the unclean, murderers, sexually immoral, it, sorcerers is the word pharmakia, which we get drugs from, idolaters, and all liars. Why that one at the end? Because they believed 
no longer believed the truth about the gospel and Jesus and all those things, but they started to believe the doctrines of Balaam and Jezebel and all the false doctrines in those seven churches, demonstrating that they did not have true faith. So who is in the lake of fire for eternity? Well, the devil is, Revelation 20, verse 10. The false prophet is, the beast is there. Everyone who ever followed them. But the opposite, the reason is, you know why? Because this is where they quench their thirst. They thought they could be satisfied in their fear and their cowardice and whatever immorality might have get them, pharmakia might have given them, and they did not keep their faith. So how important is it to be a conqueror? Well, it is a trait of everyone who endures their faith, everyone who keeps their faith more in the most difficult time, not because in doing so you earn it, but you demonstrate it. That's what that text, I think, believe, is, is all after. Um, the next contrast is between clean and unclean. Let me stop, and I, our time is actually done. Um, read a little bit further in this text. One of the major points of 21 and 22 is that when the new heavens and new earth comes, there's really only two areas of existence. You are either inside the city or you are outside the city. If you look at the end of chapter 22, it says, Blessed, verse 14, are those who wash their robes. They are clean, not defiled. So they may have the right to the tree of life. And they may enter the city. You can come in the city if you've been cleaned and, and, and undefiled because of the blood of Jesus. But again, contrast. Outside, dogs, sorcerers, which came from our list in 21.8. Sexual immoral came from that list. Murderers came from that. Idolaters. Everyone who loves and practices a lie. Almost identical phraseology. Again, repeating that... What happens at the end of time in in the new heavens and new earth is a final separation. There are really only two kinds and have always been only two kinds of people. And there will be people who, by their life and their faith and the way that they live, demonstrate it. And, And why do I press that? Because three times in these last few chapters, here's what the Bible says in Revelation when Jesus comes, that when he comes, he will judge every man according to their works. Not because you work your way to heaven, but because when you stand before God, whether it's at the great wine throw judgment or any other judgment, that you will have, either your works will demonstrate your faith or not. You read Titus chapter one and verse six, it says, for they say that they know God, but in works they deny him. It is good for us that our theme this year is gospelizers. Because there are a lot of people who, so-called Christians, who may be shocked on the day of judgment because they did not heed the warnings of this book. That is how this book ends. If you take anything out of this book and all of its warnings at the end, it says this, and I will take away your name out of the book of life. That's about as serious warning as you can get. Right? So it behooves us not just to look at Revelation as newspaper theology by marked off by current events, but for its purpose is to exhort us, warn us, encourage us to live 
as if Jesus could come at any moment because he can. And the question is, will we be ready? Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to see those contrasts. The Bible is very good at antithetical. They want us to see it. It's either this or this. And Father, there'll be a judgment day coming and we will stand. And there'll be only two options. You will either enter the new city or literally the Bible says they will be thrown into the lake of fire. These are eternal decisions that we are making. Oh, Father, help us to live lives worthy of the lamb who was slain, worthy of his sacrifice. And may we as church members, when we come here together to worship, may we truly, as the Bible says, exhort one another to love and good works. Lord Jesus, Maranatha, we pray that you'd come quickly. We pray that you'd come today, that we can be forever in your holy presence. We look forward to that day with eager expectation. Until then, may we be true and faithful to you as you have been to us. And we'll thank you for that until we see your face. In Jesus' name, amen.